Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Getting ready to represent Christ to your world today. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Friday, the 10th of January, 2020. So, you know, I don't know about you. Maybe you made some commitments, resolutions, stepped over a threshold, thought you were leaving some things behind in 2019 or in the prior decade. And in this fresh month, in this fresh year, in this fresh decade, you know, you're going to live differently. Things are going to be different in 2020 and in the 2020s. And you're going to bring things into focus and Um, We're 10 days into the new year, and if you are like most of us, the the habitual patterns of the past um, are more clingy, they're more sticky than sometimes the fresh commitments that we make. And so here's the good news. God's mercies are new every morning. It occurs to me that the reason that God's mercies are new every morning is that every morning we need God's mercies anew. And so we talked um, with Jonathan Parnell about Psalm 51 and his book, Mercy, um, and inviting God every single day to uh, create in us a clean heart, inviting God every day uh, based on his mercy, based on his mercy, that God every single day would cleanse us of our transgressions, wash us, make us new. And so if, like me, you need new mercy this morning, here's the good news. God's mercies are new every morning. God's mercies are new this morning. And so in, in whatever place in your life or um, in the besetting sins that challenge you every day, um, wherever you need new mercy, God's got new mercy this morning. And it's available for you. All you need to do is ask. Humbly um, acknowledge your need for God's mercy and, and rely on the fact that God is God and he's not mad at you. He's already done everything necessary for your salvation and the restoration of your relationship with him. Um, and and he's already done everything necessary for you to walk in faith today. Everything. So uh, let me invite you to turn with me in humility and repentance to God, whose mercies are new this morning. Great is his faithfulness. Uh, Where in the word are you today? Always a reminder um, every day that we need to be in the word of God before we seek to walk our faith out into the world that he so loves. All right, this morning I've got uh, Matthew Hawkins. He and I are going to spend a little time sort of surveying the landscape, the life landscape. This is uh, Sanctity of Life Month. We are approaching Sanctity of Life Sunday, and I thought it would be helpful to just kind of take a step back and look at the broad category of uh, of life, life issues, the life landscape here in the United States of America as we enter into 2020. So up next, Matt Hawkins. We'll be right back. 
All right, it's Faithful Friday, so Matt Hawkins is in the house. You can find him at MatthewTHawkins.com. You can also find him on Twitter at MTHawk. Good morning, my friend. Happy New Year again. Good morning. How are you? Happy Friday. It's good. I know. Happy Friday. I feel like um, I'm, I'm now saying Happy New Year the second time around to people that I've already spoken with <laughs> once this year, but it still what, feels what, early. <laughs> yeah. What, what is the threshold for when we stop saying Happy New Year? So here's, so here's the rule. So apparently if I've already said it. Good. Yeah. So if I've already said it to you once, like I'm not supposed to repeat uh, it, but if it's the first time right. in the month of January that I've encountered you, then I'm supposed, still yeah. supposed to say Happy New Year. So I need like a chart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like who have I already seen and talked with? And then who have I not seen and talked with? Because those people, I still owe them a Happy New Year. So it's a lot of pressure. It's yeah. just a lot of pressure. Yeah, I know. I know. And our All brains right, so, are just, we're just, uh, our brains just aren't functioning for that. No, clearly not. That kind of recall. My, I still have my Christmas decorations that need to go back to the attic. So um, I got all uh, kinds of issues in my life. I know. All kinds even of Epiphany I, has passed, Carmen. I know. <laughs> I'm in the 12 days of Christmas that follow Orthodox Christmas. It's just, I'm just okay. embracing the unity of the body of Christ everywhere. Okay. So um, you and I are going to talk about uh, the sanctity of human life. Uh, sanctity of Human Life Sunday is coming up on okay. the 19th. The March for Life is coming up on uh, January the 24th. And it's interesting, Matt, I mean, you and I have both attended uh, March for Life events in Washington, D.C. Sometimes they are, you know, really mm-hmm. sort of overwhelming, enormous events. Um, I'm, I'm increasingly yeah. hearing people talking about actually going to events closer to home, um, you know, yeah. being sure that they are at life events and March for Life events in their own state capital or in their own community. I don't know, what's your, what's your yeah. sense of everybody going to Washington, D.C., um, for the March for Life versus them doing March for Life kinds of things or Sanctity of Life kinds of things in their own communities. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I I think, you know, if, if someone has not been to Washington, D.C. for the March for Life uh, at the national level, I say go. Uh, maybe maybe it's too short notice to plan it for this year, but, you know, put it on, you know, a short bucket list uh, mm-hmm. of things to do. Um, it's now getting to Washington, D.C. in January is not exactly a it's kind of weather risky as far as the pleasantness of what's going to be outside. So you got to dress warmly, dress in layers and uh, be prepared for weather. But, um, you know, I, I think if you haven't been to Washington, go once. It's tremendously encouraging. Um, what you'll find is a, a mass of crowds there to protest abortion uh, in a in a peaceful, um, friendly way. And it's diverse. Um, it's young. And uh, there's just a lot of energy there. And so I encourage people, if you have not been to Washington, D.C. for um, the March for Life, go. Uh, go at least once. Uh, but then I think I think you're right. Um, it's, it's an interesting development to uh, see more local um, events, more March for Life, uh, you know, Walk for Life, those kinds of things um, around the Sanctity of Life Sunday within the state. I know there are a number of things here in Tennessee. Uh, those kinds of things around your state are probably easily Googleable, um, but typically around the 19th, 20th, 22nd of January, those kinds of events are going to be popping up. Um, and I encourage people to go. Uh, you know, what would really be be something is for marches for life at the local level, at the state level, to start popping up within states that have uh, pretty broad 
abortion practices, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe quote unquote blue states uh, that may may not have implemented uh, some of the restrictions that uh, the uh, pro more pro life leaning states have, and so that would be an interesting uh, thing to see trend upward over the next few years, um, as you as you indicate, and we've probably discussed a little bit. 2020 could be a big year on the abortion issue. The Supreme Court's going to hear at least one case uh, in March related to an abortion restriction law in Louisiana having to do with simply medical requirements for um, abortion clinics and abortion doctors and uh, related to safety procedures and trying to require them to have the same kinds of uh, medical qualifications as, say, uh, an emergency medical team would have in an ambulance. Uh, They're kind of base level um, requirements that all of the clinics have to participate by. Um, And uh, yeah, but I always enjoyed going to the March for Life. I was based in D.C. for eight years and and, uh, for for work and, and went a number of times. And it was always a really really important uh, thing for that city to see that. Yeah, there's a testimony. There's a testimony. All right, so you've alluded to um, some of these state-level conversations that are going on related to um, abortion, abortion restrictions, abortion access. We've got things brewing in Nebraska and Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm aware of those. Um, bring us up to speed because they're very different. So what's happening in Nebraska and what's happening yeah. in Massachusetts? Yeah. So as the abortion thing goes in this era of of this tragedy, um, we are already starting to see state level action. And so states are um, doing a couple things uh, for for kind of in different directions, but for the same reason, uh, given that the Supreme Court now theoretically could have five votes uh, in favor of some kind of uh, restriction on abortion at the federal level. Um, people like to say, you know, question is, is the court potentially going to overturn, uh, Roe v. Wade? I think that's a, that's probably not going to happen in kind of a 180 degree uh, way that people often envision. However, um, state legislatures are, uh, moving in a direction to prepare for a, you know, a what if, uh, Roe v. Wade is, is overturned. In which case, uh, Nebraska is trying to increase um, state level because what happens? Sorry to back up. Uh, if Roe v. Wade <clears throat> were to be uh, overturned, kind of in a classic, uh, very simple sense, uh, authority, uh, unless the court says otherwise, authority would be relegated to the states. And so, basically, all of a sudden, you have a state level abortion laws that are active in a way they aren't presently. And so, uh, Nebraska is uh, seeking to uh, ban uh, second trimester abortions. So they're trying to incrementally roll back uh, the time frame with which uh, an abortion would be allowed. Uh, On the other side of the spectrum, Massachusetts is trying to increase abortion access by, get this, removing the permission requirement from parents for minors who wish to have an abortion. This is kind of a new level of uh, uh, it's a pretty bold move. Now, uh, Massachusetts is probably not, you know, it's one of the states that's probably not surprising for this to kind of come through. But imagine a minor, you know, under 17, under 16, you know, 14 or 15 who's pregnant and wants to get an abortion. Uh, whatever the tragedy that uh, caused that, that led to that, uh, yeah, often cases, often cases, abuse, um, and rape, uh, 
imagine a, a child going through a surgical procedure um, without the permission of her parents. Uh, it's a pretty radical law. Um, and, but abortion, uh, but Massachusetts wants to get a better rating from uh, Planned Parenthood. Uh, not, not all of Massachusetts, obviously, but, uh, the people that are supporting this law and they want to get a better rating from Planned Parenthood, uh, with respect to their state laws. So that's kind of a early glimpse. Uh, yeah, it's this, you know, first full week of January and these things are already starting to move. All right. When Matt Hawkins and I come back from a break, we're going to talk about um, the fact that the reason we're talking about these state laws is because these state laws have a very real impact. They have a very real impact, obviously, on the lives of those um, who have been conceived but not yet born. They also have um, tremendous impact on women and men and families in states uh, where these laws are passed. They also have a very real impact on abortion providers. And we're going to touch on that when we come back. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Matt Hawkins. Uh, He's the former policy director for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Uh, He is a public theologian. You can follow him on Twitter at MTHawk. You can also visit him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Matt, let's talk about uh, the very real effect that state laws have on abortion providers, um, yeah. because it's it's it is significant. There are places where um, you know maybe we're down to one city or one provider in in a particular state because of yeah. uh, increasing restrictions on abortion in those places. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's a validation of some of the strategy that the pro-life movement has really taken on over the last, say, decade or or so, uh, realizing that uh, movement at the federal level is really difficult and and kind of uh, you see blips of shift at the federal level, maybe once in a generation. Um, They took it to the state level and it's been rather productive, um, even in states like Massachusetts that we were just discussing, um, legislation can restrict abortion such that uh, abortion providers uh, have to pack up and go home. Uh, usually it's a clinic by clinic kind of situation, um, but basically some of these clinics can't meet, can't or won't. Sometimes they just decide not to uh, meet the state requirements uh, for, say, safety uh, for women. Um, and uh, some of this has to do with um, funding from government channels. Um, you, you have state ability to uh, restrict government funding now uh, going to – uh, federal, uh, going to abortion clinics in some places. Uh, and one of the examples is in Massachusetts where uh, a women's health services clinic uh, is apparently has been running in the red for years. Uh, basically doesn't turn anyone down. And uh, they tend to provide, if they, if they charge, uh, they tend to charge about $700, whereas an abortion in a hospital context uh, is between uh, fourteen and 1800 for a first trimester abortion. And so uh, they, they actually started a GoFundMe uh, page to try to raise money so they could get in the black. Otherwise, they're going to have to close in like three months. Uh, that sounds to me like it's a kind of a, a desperate uh, plea. Uh, it's kind of too late um, for, for that to go on. Maybe maybe they do raise the money, um, but uh, they're not even getting funding 
from abortion grants, uh, kind of abortion funding grants. So it's not just uh, that government has been restricted, but they're losing, uh, losing out. So I'm wondering if there's more to the story than Boston Globe is reporting here, uh, just because I'm suspicious that when you have an abortion clinic that doesn't require, doesn't um, uh, compete isn't able to get even uh, dollars that come straight for an abortion uh, grant process, you know, non-governmental abortion grant program. Um, I'm suspicious what's, what's kind of really going on behind yeah. behind the scenes there. Uh, they don't seem to be playing ball even with their own team. So, uh, I, you know, I, I'm just kind of scratching my head about that a little bit. Um, but you see even uh, the rhetoric, even in uh, what's supposed to be straight reporting, um, you know, this the clinic has been, quote, providing help. Uh, yeah. for, you know, 28 years. Uh, and, and, you know, help is a, is a pretty interesting term for, uh, for what we know really happens in abortion. So, um, one more, one more thread to pull on this topic in terms of the, uh, abortion landscape across the United States. I am noting, um, I mean, I know, I know it's been going on, um, but I'm now noting that journalists are covering how pro-abortion advocates are coordinating nationally to bring their influence yeah. to bear um, against pro-life laws that are adopted in more conservative states. So we have the Pennsylvania Attorney General now joining um, a brief uh, to the U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. And so this is a now a multi-state coalition of attorneys general um, all lining yeah. up um, against Arkansas. Like, right. So just talk right. with us about that, because right. this, this seems like a high pressure campaign. Yeah. Uh, in, in one sense, yes. Uh, when you uh, when a state passes restrictive abortion laws, uh, you, you got to anticipate uh, being a, a target of uh, lawsuits. And in one sense, uh, this kind of thing goes on all the time. I mean, uh, from, you know, if there was a significant uh, I mean, when I was with the ERLC, we, um, we, you know, we're typically tasked with uh, engaging the federal level uh, in federal cases. We don't really have the capacity uh, in that particular office to uh, engage a lot of state stuff, but occasionally we would. Uh, and occasionally we would join uh, amicus briefs. Uh, and these, the amicus brief is a fancy word of saying friend of the court brief, uh, where it's, uh, you know, anyone basically in the community who believes they might be affected uh, by the decision of the court, they can write. And be a friend of the a friend of the court brief. Uh, that's the technical kind of the technical way of doing it, uh, and it's a formal document. It's not like a uh, you know registering a vote or uh, uh, any kind of thing like that. It's a very very uh, kind of a, a legally argued kind of. Uh, uh, document. Uh, and so, you know, you have coalitions that come together to produce these things. And so it's not really all that different um, from, say, the uh, the amicus we discussed last week um, at the Supreme Court filed by a bunch of pro-life um, uh, senators and, and members of uh, the House of Representatives at the federal level. But uh, you do. Uh, uh, in this case, you have uh, a number of state attorneys general, like uh, the Pennsylvania uh, Attorney General Josh Shapiro joining with others to uh, fight um, uh, fight this uh, Arkansas law in a, a federal court of appeals, right? So at the same, it is a it is a context where the case has gone to the federal level, and so you have other state attorneys generals uh, wanting to weigh in uh, and just tell the court, say, "Hey guys, if you go, if Arkansas goes through with this, this might be ramifications for for our states and other states," and that presumably is going to be a uh, intended to be a caution. And so we'll be interested to see uh, where this goes. But on the one hand, the tactic isn't uh, all that different. Um, but uh, 
it, it is interesting uh, to see, uh, you know, a, kind of a, a movement across the states to uh, pick on little Arkansas, which uh, not exactly uh, nothing against Arkansas. I've been to, <clears throat> I've been to the Hot Springs. It's a, it's a cool place and uh, uh, enjoyed any of my visits there. But as far as kind of a national political, um, uh, you know, policy tr- shifting, policy shaping kind of state, we don't typically think of Arkansas. Uh, we think of California, Texas, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, and those kinds of things. So it is interesting that our Arkansas uh, has drawn the ire. Uh, of, of this group. Exactly. All right. Well, um, wherever you live, check out whether or not your attorney general in your state is elected or appointed. I happen to live in one of the seven states where the attorney general is appointed. But 43 states across the country have elected attorney generals. And so um, if your yeah. state is uh, has an elected attorney general, then you have some influence and power here in terms of communicating with that office and how they are using um, your resources as a citizen of your state uh, in terms of the abortion conversation going on across the country. Matt Hawkins, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate it. Thanks, Carmen. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. All right, friends, we're going to take a quick break for Knowing God with Greg Laurie. So um, here's just a quick question. Who do you know that is currently serving in some sort of mission capacity overseas? As God brings those people, that individual, those groups to mind, um, please pray for them. Uh, I've got a friend whose name's Clay, Clay Smith. He is uh, an ER doctor uh, in the city where I live, and um, he is in Haiti right now. Um, he has a passion for um, women who are pregnant, and he has a passion for their health care and seeking to bring infant mortality rates down in the nation of Haiti. Um, the reason that God brought him to mind, I suspect, is because my next conversation is um, with a with a doctor who spends his entire life uh, deployed, um, really over overseas, um, and his name is Dr. David Vanderpool, um, and Dr. Vanderpool has a passion for Haiti as well. He has now been there for ten years since the earthquake that devastated that island nation, um, and we're going to have Dr. Vanderpool here in just a moment to talk about live beyond in Haiti. Uh, he, he really does combine his Christian faith and his medical mission in a way that is uh, particularly uh, impactful. And so we want to talk about that. We want to talk about the ways in which God is using his people around the world through their gifts, uh, in this case, the gift of, of healing, the gift of medicine, um, to really transform the lives of people and extend the gospel. So that conversation with Dr. David Vanderpool up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Joining me now, Dr. David Vanderpool. Oh, am I, am I, is he joining me now or am I doing something else, Paul? I'm so sorry. <laughs> I get so excited when I know that the person is already available and I could talk with them now, then, um, then I forget myself and I forget what I'm doing. Okay, let me remind you of a couple of things. Um, please visit MyFaithRadio.com. If you, um, if you need a Bible, we are always giving away Bibles. Uh, this month, we are giving away the Charles Spurgeon Study Bible. We're giving away a copy every week. If you are in need of a Bible, um, please go to MyFaithRadio.com and enter to win uh, the Bible that we're giving away this week. Maybe you are an aspiring author um, and, and you're looking for a Christian Writers Conference 
Um, we've got one at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. It's called the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. It's July 24th and 25th. I'm going to be there. Susie Larson's going to be there. Meeting her will be really exciting and fun. Meeting me, well, maybe not so much. Um, but tickets are on sale now, 20% off registration for the entire month of January. So again, uh, visit visit us at NorthwesternChristianWritersConference.com. Get all of the information and register uh, to join us July 24th and 25th at the Northwestern Christian Writers Conference. We'll be right back with my conversation with Dr. David Vanderpool. That's up next here on Morning for Carmen. There's nothing more destructive to your relationship with your child than constant lecture. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Whenever conflict occurs, if your knee-jerk reaction is to lecture, you're communicating that you don't think your teen can think for himself. And if you condemn him for his mistakes, you're actually reinforcing that you don't really respect him. That's not your intent, but it's what your child is hearing. So what can be done? Well, stop lecturing and start listening. In fact, start today. Try it for a day. Don't flip out, argue, or lecture. It'll take a lot of discipline on your part, but you may discover it's just what your teen needs. Before long, your teen will return the favor and start listening to you. Want more help from Mark Gregston? Find books and other resources online at parentingtodaysteens.org. Dr. David Vanderpool, uh, he is a Christian, he is a physician, and he heads up a ministry called Live Beyond. That's also the title of his brand new book, Live Beyond, A Radical Call to Surrender and Serve. Dr. Vanderpool, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. It's great to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you. So one of the things I appreciate about uh, about the book, Live Beyond, um, is that it's really a blueprint for anybody who has ever wondered how did that guy uh, start doing this? Like, how did that ministry get going? How did this thing really not only get up and running, but how does it function? Like, you lay it all out. You know, we do. And we really wanted to have this book be an encouragement to people who really want to change the world, who really want to get out there and make a difference, to get out and be able to change people's lives, especially in poor countries. So let's just let's back up and um, and talk about your passion for what you're doing, why you do what you do, and then um, particularly the call to Haiti that came 10 years ago. Well, you know, we have a great story. The Lord has been so kind to us. We grew up in great families, have a long heritage of Christian uh, belief in our families way back. And uh, I was raised that way. And it was just such a great way for me to be raised. I was I was raised in an affluent family. And, you know, it was interesting. We traveled. We did a lot of mission work as, as a kid. And I would see the disparity between income. I'd see people who uh, were just barely hanging on to life, living in cardboard boxes in the rain and that kind of thing. And it really impacted me uh, as, a, as a teenager, especially. It made me realize that the Lord was calling me uh, to something more, that I wasn't just to be a doctor here in uh, the United States, a surgeon taking care of people, but I was to use the gifts that the Lord gave me in very low-tier countries. 
Um, let me just be sure that our listeners know how to find you and what we're talking about today. You can just simply go to livebeyond.org, livebeyond.org. You're going to get all the information that you need, not only um, about the book, but about the ministry of Live Beyond, where they are deployed um, and what they are doing and how you can come alongside them. So, Dr. Vanderpool, um, let's... Uh, Let's turn the clock back 10 years to this devastating earthquake that took place in in Haiti. Um, Your sense of the social magnitude of what happened um, in that earthquake and then, you know, the ripple effect that still continues today. Well, that's a great question. You know, in the earthquake, the anniversary of the earthquake is coming up on Sunday. So 10 years ago, uh, about four o'clock in the afternoon, a, a tremendous earthquake hit Haiti. It was right during the time where women are out shopping uh, for the evening food, where kids are coming home from school. And this devastating earthquake hit primarily Port-au-Prince, the the capital city, and killed many, many hundreds of thousands of people. And about a million people were injured critically. And at that time, that was about a tenth of the population. So if you can imagine what that looks like, that one out of 10 people were critically injured, uh, you can imagine in your own, um, you know, social groups, what that would look like in your churches and things. And that's what it was in Haiti. Everybody knows somebody who died in the earthquake in Haiti. And it's a huge impact. Even today, it resonates, even though the rubble's cleared away, even though the problems that Haiti has may not be related to the earthquake anymore. The the social impact is just tremendous. And you and I both know, um, Dr. Vanderpool, that that's a spiritual conversation as much as it is um, a conversation about physical relief and recovery and restoration. I mean, when you say that everybody knows somebody who died in Haiti, um, that means that everybody is also asking the bigger questions. What happens when we die? Where do we go? Is eternity real? Is God real? Do I have hope? Um, Talk with us about the way in which um, you don't just tend to the physical needs of the person, but to the spiritual needs of that individual and those around them. Absolutely. And it's so important. You know, we arrived in Haiti two days after the earthquake, and we set up a large hospital to take care of the people there. We had, at our peak, we had about 180 physicians and 500 nurses. We had 24 operating rooms that worked around the clock, and we provided health care for the people who were so badly injured uh, in the earthquake. But what we noticed was that there was a hopelessness uh, behind those eyes that we saw. We would take care of their physical bodies, but the hopelessness persisted. And so what we realized was that, you know, Haiti, the, the predominant religion in Haiti is voodoo, which is an open satanic worship. And that produces this hopelessness and this this real vagueness that is just amazing part of the Haitian culture. We realized then that taking care of the physical needs wasn't enough. It was a great entree into the people's lives, but it just wasn't enough. So we've started churches uh, we minister to to tens of thousands of people a year. And, and at our base in Haiti right now, about 150 people come to the Lord every single year over the last 10 years. So it's just an amazing impact. They see the change. They see the Christian life emulated in the people who come down to Haiti, and they want that so dramatically. You know, one of the things they say all the time is, you know, the voodoo priest didn't help us after the earthquake, but those American Christians did. And that really makes a big impact on them. Dr. Vanderpool, you and I are going to take a, a very brief break. Um, when we come back, 
Um, I, I like to ask some practical questions that people always ask when I have conversations with people um, like yourself who now live uh, internationally is the way we would describe it here in the United States. Um, and so I just want to talk with you about some of just the practical questions that people ask about your family um, or about maybe what is significantly different about living in a place other than the United States. So those conversations up next with Dr. David Vanderpool, the book and the website are Live Beyond. Uh, the website is livebeyond.org. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Dr. David Vanderpool. The book is Live Beyond. The website is livebeyond.org. Um, David, you are not um, in this alone by any stretch of the imagination. Um, this is uh, this is a family effort. This is a movement of the body of Christ, of which you are a part um, and and even in the very beginning of this interview, you were using plural pronouns to describe this uh, to describe yourself. Um, you just you know you described uh, you used terms you know we uh, you know we grew up in we uh, are doing who's the we? <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. You know I have an absolutely wonderful wife. We were junior high sweethearts, so we've known each other forever. Been married almost thirty nine years now. So so grateful for her, and she really leads the charge. She is so godly, and the the Lord speaks to her. She works in His kingdom in such a wonderful way, and uh, and and we've raised three wonderful children. You know these we've been doing this kind of ministry for about twenty twenty five years, and so our our children grew up going to Mozambique, going to Ghana, going to places like that, and ministering the gospel uh, through healthcare. And uh, so they've all experienced this from a very young age, and uh, now they're continuing to hold hold that light up, hold that torch up high, so that the kingdom can be spread. So one of the reasons that I wanted to highlight that um, is because you've also. Um, you also talked about, you know, what you were able to do in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. I mean, three days later, you were there, you were set up, you had a mobile hospital up and running, 180 doctors um, re- literally ready to roll, trusting you to um, pr- gonna provide what they were going to need on the ground in order to do what only they could do. Um, and there's a reason, there's a pathway to this. It is not as if you and Lori woke up one day um, and and said, hey, we're just going to sell everything and move to Haiti and, you know, see, you know, fling it into the wind and see what God's going to do. There is a path of intentional preparation um, that leads a family like yours to do what you are doing, which which then in turn enables and equips a whole lot of other people to engage in um, in very meaningful ministry vocationally and, um, you know, and as volunteers who come alongside doctors who are doing um, what doctors uniquely are equipped and able to do. Um, there is a unity of the spirit uh, between you and Lori and doing what you do that I think is worth bearing testimony to. Um, I think we do not often talk uh, publicly about how the two become one. And the two of you are really one in everything that you are doing. Um, and I think there's a testimony in that to a world that only thinks about individualism and individual achievement, um, even in the context of marriage. 
Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things I think is so important, and I just can't underscore this enough, is that we are called to take care of the extreme poor in very low tier countries. That is our specific calling. Laurie and I know that as much as we know our own names. And if you are not called, then you just should not go. It is the an absolute imperative. We've had so many well-intentioned people come down to Haiti and not make it simply because they just weren't called. And you could tell. And to your point, I remember one couple, the husband felt like he was called, but the wife didn't want to be there. And it's just too difficult of a place to live. I mean, there's no electricity. There's no running water. You know, there's no sewage. There's no flush toilets, those kinds of things. And so living there is a very challenging, uh, you know, adventure. If you're not both really called to be there, then there's going to be problems. And we've seen that so many times. Fortunately, in our lives, uh, Laurie and I are just, uh, I mean, we are, we resonate to the same frequency. We are so called together uh, to do this kind of thing. So things like fear and safety and those kind of things fall by the wayside because we know the Lord will take care of us. It's such an exciting um, testimony um, and, and wonderful story. Again, the book is Live Beyond, A Radical Call to Surrender and Serve. The easiest way to find it is to simply go to livebeyond.org, where you can also learn um, about the ministry and how you can come alongside the Live Beyond ministry um, in, in Haiti and in other places around the world. Um, the book, again, is it's not just uh, the story of Dr. Vanderpool and uh, and Lori and the way that God is magnificently using them. It is uh, It really is a blueprint for anybody who has heard the call and wants to know how to lay the foundations. Um, it lays out the, the challenges and the choices and the changes that will need to be made. Um, in your own life. And, and then um, there just are some wonderful stories of the testimony of how God uses people when they are fully surrendered to him. Um, Dr. Vanderpool, before we let you go today, um, I'm wondering if you could just tell us um, a good news story of a life transformed. Oh, that's great. You know, those are hard because there's so many uh, great stories. But one of the stories that, that I love um, is about a lady named Maisie. And uh, Maisie was a voodoo priestess. And in Haiti, the voodoo priestesses will walk through fire to worship Satan. And so they get horrible burns to their feet and their legs. And so Maisie came into our clinic one day, had walked the five or six miles from her, her, her home to our hospital, and came in with these horrific burns that she'd been you know, suffering with for 20-some-odd years. So we started taking care of her burns. And, and Laurie, my wife, really was the one who was primarily taking care of her. And she would ask her if, if she could pray with, with her. And Maisie would, would deny that, would turn her down because she was still worshiping Satan. But day after day, Maisie would come back to our clinic because the, the, the medicine that we used to uh, put on her burns made her feel so much better. Day after day, she came back. Day after day, she refused to pray. One day, probably three months in, Maisie said, please pray for me. And so Laurie prayed for her, and a transformation in Maisie started to take place. The hardness, the, the fear, 
the hopelessness that you could see in her eyes started to fade. And then one day she came to our church and she accepted the name of Jesus, was baptized, and is now a strong believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, raising her children in a Christian home, whereas before she was raising it in, in a voodoo home, which were, were just a terrible place. She has several children who have been born to her as Christians, and the light that they show, they radiate just the light of Jesus. It's so obvious. It's just a wonderful story of redemption for someone who perhaps the world thought couldn't be redeemed. Dr. Vanderpool, um, thank you so much for what you are doing every day. Thank you for sharing your testimony and your story. Um, Thank you for going to a hard place and doing hard things that I know bring you um, tremendous joy and uh, the the deepest sense of satisfaction that a human being can ever have, which is that you're doing God's work um, in in the world that he so loves with people who are very vulnerable um, and on the very edge of survival. So thank you. Um, thank you for who you are and what you do. Give our best to Lori and to your team and to your family. Um, and again, thank you for the book. Uh, we're going to encourage people to go to livebeyond.org. The book is also Live Beyond. Thank you so much for being with us today on Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Blessings to you. Blessings. We'll be right back. It occurs to me that we have been... Um, We've been having a number of very inspiring uh, stories. So thank you to Paul Perot for the ways in which you are, you know, just doing a great job, man. We're we're talking uh, to people shucks. who, uh, right? We're talking to people who are literally out there on the front lines of doing changing the world for Jesus, and mm-hmm. they're doing it. They're doing it. Um, we um, and we're not done yet today. We have um, we have another conversation planned in in the second half of the next hour. Um, with Walt Wilson, and he's another guy who is literally changing the world for Jesus Christ. Um, so I'm, I'm excited about um, what we're doing here on Mornings with Carmen. We hope you're excited as well. Certainly, we are going to bring the mind of Christ to bear on the headline news of the day, but we're also seeking to, um, to share the good news stories of what God's doing in the world that he so loves. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.